0: You grew up in the tradition that I did in the Wesleyan Church. That was a song that makes me think of uh, times when people were praying at the altar. And, uh, you know, we would sing that as a sort of a a prayer of, of wanting Christ to control our lives. As we were singing that, my mind was flashing back to days of my childhood and witnessing probably hundreds of those experiences as people, including myself, prayed around the altar. And it was always a time when people were, were thinking about their struggles. You know, thinking about the difficulties. Some of the struggles were spiritual. Some of the struggles were physical. Some were emotional. Some were mental. But, but it, it, in my mind, it, it represents the, the, the struggle that we as human beings have. His life is full of struggles. In his classic book, The Road Less Traveled, which is one of my, a book that probably affected me as profoundly as maybe the top ten books of my life. Scott Peck begins that book, his treatise on love and growth and, and nurture. And he begins by a little three-word sentence that is so profound first three words of that book are simply, life is difficult. And it's true. Life is difficult. And we are all walking witnesses of the difficulties of life. And sometimes in our lives, they ebb and flow. Sometimes the difficulties feel a little less. But then there are other times where it feels like we are barely keeping our necks above the water. And then we think about the world around us and all of the pain and the struggles of our world, injustice, all the corruption of our world. And we see all of it and it can weigh so heavily upon us. And in the midst of all of this, our struggles and the world's struggles, the question that keeps coming to my mind is, God, what are you going to do about this? I ask it about my own life because in the, the sort of the the understory of that question is, can't you make my life less difficult? Can't you ease up things a little bit? Can't you let me live in such a way that I don't have to face all of these things? And I want that for the world too. And I can't really explain to you exactly why Life is difficult except that we are people who have been given free will and the result of free will is that there is sin and there is evil. But in the midst of all of that, the question that keeps coming to the surface, both of Christians and quite frankly non-Christians, is where is God? Can God do anything about it? Is God doing anything about it? Does God even care? Jesus arrives in Capernaum, He is He is confronting people, as He does everywhere he goes in Israel, who are asking, God, do you realize what we're going through? We've been waiting a long time. We've suffered a lot. We're still wrestling with life. Are you going to do anything about it? Does it even matter to you? And onto the stage of their questioning and their struggles and life is difficult. Jesus emerges. He's been all around the region of Galilee. Right before this, as we talked last week, he was in Nazareth and that did not end so well. He, uh, he got a little confrontational with them subtly and they want to throw him off a cliff. So he now comes to Capernaum and you almost get the sense as the crowd welcomes him, they're saying, look, we won't treat you like those crazies in Nazareth. We're glad to have you here. And they welcome him with open arms and he comes to the synagogue and he begins to teach. And Luke tells us that he teaches with authority and the people are amazed. They're amazed at his authority. I I think it's the message that words it this way. You can always count on Eugene Peterson to turn a phrase. They were surprised and impressed His teaching was so forthright, so confident, so authoritative, not the quibbling and quoting they were used to. You know, Jesus is speaking with authority. I don't think it's just the words that he uses, but it's the whole whole demeanor of who he is, that he walks into the synagogue and he teaches with the sense of I understand you and I understand God and I have something to say to you. And it resonates with them and it connects with them. And and they begin to sense that there is something unique about Jesus. Because you get the sense that the fact that Luke says somebody here with authority implies that most of the teachers didn't have authority. And they're enamored with Jesus. But the authority of Jesus isn't limited to the words he speaks. It's also his actions, what he does. And then we have these little vignettes that follow this word about him teaching where we see his authority About life's difficulties. It's his teaching. A man stands up who has a demon in him. And he begins shouting at Jesus. What are you doing here? Leave us alone. Have you come to destroy us? And the short answer to the last question is yes. Yes, I have come to destroy you. John writes in his first epistle. The son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is there to destroy it. One of the translations puts the question this way. What business is it of yours to bother us? Leave us alone. And the truth of the kingdom and the coming of Christ is that God does not leave evil alone. Sometimes it feels like he leaves evil alone. Sometimes when the world seems to be falling apart more and more every day and there is so much pain. I me mean, reading about the, this millions of people in Africa who are dying of hunger and starvation, famine, simply because the leaders of government won't make decisions, won't get along. Just shake your head and say, what? And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of our own difficulties, it is tempting to think that God is ignoring evil, that he doesn't really care that much. That it's just not that important to him. That when the demon says, what business is it of yours? That God says, well, I guess you're right. It really isn't my business. Jesus says, oh, it's my business. That's why I'm here. I am here, and and as his ministry begins, he makes it crystal clear he has come to address evil. And he has authority over evil. It's not just that God cares about evil, that Jesus is concerned about evil. He has the authority to do something about it. All he has to do is to rebuke that demon, and it is done. No argument, no pushback. No struggle, it's done. We just sang in the song The Great I Am, the demons run and flee at the mention of your name is true. And in this world of evil and difficulty and struggle and pain, God is not silent. God is not helpless. And God is, is not ignoring it. He is at work. We may not see it, but he is at work. And the foundation of our faith is that we believe because Jesus has come, God has addressed evil. And ultimately, in a tomb, three or so years after this event, we will see the conquering of evil in its fullness. And ultimately, the kingdom will come and we will see what is now hidden from us, but is a reality. God does not ignore evil even though sometimes it may feel like it. But our problems are not limited to just evil in a general sense. There is also the struggle of the consequences of evil. We all live with the consequences of evil. We live in this fallen, broken world and, and every day, in our, in our bodies, in our relationships, in our work, in things we try to accomplish, we are continually wrestling with the consequences of evil. When Jesus is done at the synagogue, he goes to Peter's home, and Peter's mother-in-law is, is violently ill, and you get the sense that she is maybe nearing death And they ask Jesus to heal her, and he willingly does that, and he stands over her. And I'm intrigued at the way Luke describes this. He says, Jesus rebuked the fever. It seems like an odd way to say that, doesn't it? He rebuked the fever. Now, in in chapter, verse 35, it says that Jesus rebuked the demon, and that makes sense. But to rebuke the fever seems odd to me, and it caught my attention, and I began to ponder that. And it struck me, it, it is the same word. Used here. I think there is this sense that, that Jesus doesn't just address evil in a general sense. But he is at work helping us deal with the consequences of evil in a specific sense. Now I don't mean by this that this the, the Peter's mother-in-law sinned and so that's why she's sick. There are people who will say that. You know, there are people who, who will tell us, if, if you're a Christian and, and you're sick, then something's wrong with you. There's something wrong with your life. You've sinned. You, you've, you've done something against God, and, and this is the result of that. And I, I don't believe that at all. I think we get sick because we live in a fallen world. Because we live in a fallen world, there are diseases, and there are fevers, and we have to wrestle with hard things, like cancer, and heart failure and and issues of our minds and relationships that get fractured because we hurt each other and jobs that don't work out the way we want them to I mean, all of this is is the, are the consequences of, of the reality of evil and all of these things are bigger than us. If they weren't bigger than us, we'd just take care of them and be done with it. But they're bigger than we are. We we don't have control over them. We don't have control over how other people respond. We don't have tr- control over the, the economy. We don't have control over whether we get that job or not, or whether this relationship works out or not. It's not that we don't have any part in it, but we don't have final control of it. There are other people, and other circumstances involved. It is beyond us. It is bigger than us. All of these things, even the medical issues, as much as the medical profession has progressed in treating our diseases and our struggles, the reality is at some point it's not going to be enough. And we probably have all had a physician say to us, well, this is the best we can do. And even the, the, the drugs that come out in the market to help us with this disease often have side effects that are sometimes you have to wonder if they're not worse than the disease. All of this keeps coming at us. Does God care? And Jesus wants us to understand that he is greater than than all of the consequences of evil in this world that we deal with. We don't always see it. It isn't always as clear as we would like for it to be. It doesn't always deal with him the way we want him to. But the foundation of our faith is that Jesus is greater. That he can rebuke a fever and it goes away. That these masses of people can come to him and he can heal them. But he is at work even now. And our minds tend to gravitate toward the things that God isn't doing and hasn't done. We often forget all of the ways in which God has addressed the struggles and the difficulties and the pains that we face. That's still not the end of the story. That evening. They bring people to Jesus. More people to have him heal them. And as he's healing people, it sounds like there are numerous people who are demon possessed. And all of these demons start shouting at Jesus like the first one did. We know who you are. You're the son of God. And again, Jesus rebukes. The third time now he rebukes the demons and tells them to be silent i've always wondered why Jesus did that. I mean it seems like a bad public relations move doesn't it? I mean you have people you have, these demons are telling the truth they're saying this is the Messiah this is the Son of God you know you, in, in some way you know there are certain circles you say any publicity is good publicity right and and it 's not even jesus friends who are saying this it 's those who hate him they 're proclaiming the truth and doesn 't Jesus come so that people will know who he is and so they will trust him? but Jesus stops it. be silent i think for one re- i think one reason Jesus does that is that Demons don't get to be the ones to tell people who Jesus is. That, that's not, that's not a, a position that demons get. And in the bigger sense of that, the timing isn't right. This is not the right time for, for Jesus to declare to these people who he is. That will need to come gradually, slowly, primarily with a small group of people until they begin to get it. Because if, if all of this is revealed right now at the beginning of his ministry to this crowd in this place at this time, they're going to completely misunderstand who Jesus is. Because in their minds, the, the Messiah is a is a revolutionary for most of them. And, and, and he's going to... Come and bring in the kingdom through power and the sword. And that's not Jesus' plan. And it's not time yet. It reminds me of when Jesus, just at the beginning of this chapter of Luke 4, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. And one of the temptations, the last one, is that Satan takes him up on the top of the temple. And he says to him, you jump off. And the scripture says your angels, the angels will rescue you. They'll catch you. And I could almost hear the evil one saying to Jesus, what a public relations stunt that will be. I mean, you talk about drawing a crowd. This will be bigger than Nick Willinda crossing Niagara Falls. This is going to be big. You get up on top of the temple. A crowd's going to be drawn around. And when everybody gets there, you jump. And the angels come and save you. You want followers? You're going to have followers. You can't beat this strategy. And Jesus, in essence, says to him, but that's not how the kingdom works. And we're reminded that, that evil doesn't determine kingdom decisions. Sometimes, I think we have a sense that God is on the run with the evil one. That he's just running around trying to clean up all these messes that the evil one has made and, and he is sort of desperate and he's backpedaling and all this stuff and waves is coming at him. Nothing could be further from the truth. Does the evil one have leeway in the world? Certainly. Does he use it to his fullest extent? He tries. But God is still greater. And God is bigger. And God is at work. And the evil one is not making kingdom decisions. When Jesus goes to the cross, it looks like the evil one is in control. It looks like the evil one is making the big decision. But we know from this side of it, that's not the case. I think in a, I don't know, maybe in a, Subconscious way, we can get sucked into the same kind of mindset about the kingdom. We, you know, subconsciously, we wrestle with wanting to control Jesus and to control the kingdom. I have a sense that's what's happening as this section comes to an end. And the people find Jesus and and they, they say to him, look, this has been awesome and we just want you to stay here. Believe me, we have enough things for you to work on. You just stay here and, and you heal all of our diseases and you you solve all of our problems and you take care of all of our struggles and you can just be our little personal God and it'll be awesome. And, I, and Jesus doesn't rebuke them this time. His response is not a rebuke because what they're saying, I don't think it's evil. It's just a misconception of the kingdom. Jesus says, That's not why I came. I've got lots of other places I need to go. People need to hear the good news. And you just don't quite understand the kingdom yet. And I don't think when we struggle that we are maliciously saying, Jesus, I want to try to control you. Jesus, I want you to, to just do things and see things just the way I do. But we're tempted to do that. It's tempting to want Jesus to be our divine errand boy who who does everything that we want him to do when we want him to do it. I mentioned that to someone this week and they said, maybe a better picture is our divine genie. I think that's probably true. You know, in all the stories of genies, you rub the lamp and the genie comes out and the genie has more power than the human. But the human controls the genie. That's the great temptation on us. Because God isn't doing things the way we want him to, our natural human reaction is to want to control Jesus. To say to him, look, this is how you need to do this. And it doesn't mean that we don't pray about things and we don't pour out our hearts to God about our desires and our yearnings. We do, we're called to do that. We should do that but always with this underlying sense that God is in control. Because the call in our lives is not to try to control Jesus, it's to surrender to Jesus. Really, to trust Him. And that's what, I think that's what Jesus is trying to lead these people to. That even though He is not doing exactly what they want, Will they trust him anyway? The psalm we read earlier, Psalm 42. You know, the the psalmist is discouraged and struggling. He keeps trying to, to say the right things, but he's really wrestling with life. And he finally gets to the very end and he says, why am I so discouraged? The answer, the solution, I'm going to put my hope in God. I'm going to trust God, even though life isn't going the way I want it to, even though the struggles are mounting, even though the pressure is upon me. I'm going to trust God because I believe in him. And we're called to do the same thing, to trust God that Jesus is who he says he is. And we trust not just with our words and not just our attitude, but with our actions as well. How we live out our lives in the midst of difficulties and struggles and evil and its consequences. I wonder if one of the ways in which we could measure our trust, because it's hard to measure trust. Maybe one of the ways is, is when people examine our lives, do they believe that we trust in Jesus? When they talk to us when they watch us, to believe that we really do trust in Jesus. We're honest about our struggles and we're honest about our burdens and we're honest about our frustration with God, quite frankly. But something underneath that sends the clear message that even with all of that, we do believe that Jesus is who He says He is. And our goal and our desire is to live in that truth. I'm not sure about you, but I, I, I like reading uh, spy novels. Vince Flynn, Daniel Silva, uh, Tom Clancy—you know a number of those authors. And when you read a number of them, you find that there are a lot of similarities. They all have a hero that works in it's involved in all of the books and um, and they paint their heroes differently but they all have a hero and the plot lines are not all that different they work themselves out in different scenarios but it you know the hero is sort of at home minding his own business doing his own thing and then some huge crisis either has evolved or is about to and this hero gets called in to action. And, and the hero is at work and begins trying to figure out what the problem is and how to solve it and how to remedy it. And, and the whole, most of the book is the whole journey of that. And in the middle of it, everything is falling apart. And, and, and life it looks and the situation looks hopeless. And the hero feels helpless. And there is destruction and mayhem and all of this stuff going on in the middle of the story. And if the author is good and you're reading it, you get drawn into the story. And, and when I'm reading these novels, I start feeling what the people in the story are feeling. Of course, I always put my place in the hero, myself in the place of the hero. Of course, that's the thing you do, right? And, and so I'm feeling all of this stuff, right? I'm feeling the agony, I'm feeling the anger, and I'm feeling the helplessness and the hopelessness. And, and, and I can sense myself getting very emotional in these stories. I, I often read them at night, and I sometimes have to put, stop reading them and do something else because I can't go to sleep. I'm so involved in it because it's such good writing. And then I pull back. And it's as so I'm looking down at the story. And I see the beginning, and I see all of this going on in the middle but I also see the end. And I know that by the time you get to the end, the hero is going to figure it out and come to the solution and save the day. The people in the story don't know that yet. But because I have the perspective that I have as a reader, I know. There's something of the gospel in that. We're in the middle. We're living our lives. And there's a lot of stuff. Life is difficult. And the world's a mess. And evil seems to be running rampant. And the consequences of evil are continually hitting us in the face. And the only way to survive in the midst of that. Is to remember how the book ends. There is an empty tomb. Jesus is with the Father, and Jesus has promised that He is going to. Come, the day is coming when He's going to usher in His kingdom, and everything's going to be set to right. And that's our faith. And that's our hope. And when you know that changes how you live so this morning i'm wondering what is it that is nagging at you what is it that's it's maybe creating doubt about god caring for you or caring for others or being involved in the world What is that? I'm going to take just a moment of silence to ponder that and and to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to help us see, to remind us who Jesus really is. Father, we cannot truly explain why things happen as they do. We acknowledge that our wisdom is so far short of yours. And we have questions and doubts and we struggle. Lord, this morning we want to declare that we believe Jesus is who he says he is. That the kingdom is the kingdom. That you are God. That there is none like you. And that all things are ultimately in your hands. So fill us with that faith and that trust. That we might live in that truth. We ask this through Jesus. Amen.